0: If you would uh, turn with me now to Luke chapter 4 and uh, verse 14. While you're turning there, I do want to just express my my really uh, gratitude and to the church here at Montville for all the work that is done to make this conference possible and uh, to care for us and to provide us with all the things that we need to have a wonderful time here and uh, I'm so indebted to this conference. It's, it's like it's, it's the time of the year to come to the Trinity Pastors Conference. Uh, it's been a, a real rejuvenating thing for me from year to year to charge the batteries again, to go back and, and get back to the work that God's called us to do. And I'm, I'm just so thankful for this conference. And I thank you for all of the work that goes into it and I appreciate, appreciate it very much. I also wanted to say that it's a bit, I think I said this about prayer, it's a bit um, fearful to preach to preachers about prayer. It's even more fearful to preach to preachers about preaching. <laughs> and, uh, I just, and I don't do so because I think that I'm a great example of these things, but I do so as, as someone who's trying to learn how to preach. I uh, Still trying to learn how to preach uh, the gospel and to preach as I ought to preach. And uh, so I hope that we can learn together. And and sometimes I think of myself in situations like this, like Samson, you know, pushing on the pillars of the temple. And if I push on the pillars, I got to push on the pillars. And if they fall on my head as well, may I learn from my own preaching. Okay, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, and I'm going to read all the way down to verse 30. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, As surely I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except the Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel, In the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. We come back now to our consideration of the example of Jesus as a preacher. Last time we considered, first of all, uh, that preaching was a primary task to which our Lord gave himself during his earthly ministry. And then we began to take up some of the characteristics of our Lord's preaching. uh, The first of which, the only one we were able to cover uh, last time, was that the preaching of Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now we're ready. Uh, to consider some additional characteristics of Jesus preaching. What must it have been like to hear the Lord Jesus preach? It's clear, as Stuart Olliot states in his little book, and we read the Gospels, that Jesus was not a boring preacher. Almost as soon as he began to preach, his fame spread throughout the region. His preaching often drew, large crowds especially when preaching uh, in Galilee multitudes gathered around to hear him per- people from all classes flocked to hear him. he would sometimes see Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting at his feet while at the same time the common people heard him gladly and even tax collectors those who never who did not frequent the synagogues even tax collectors and notorious sinners drew near. To hear him, and his preaching often left people astonished and amazed. We have descriptions like these, as we just read. So all bore witness to him and marvelled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Luke four thirty two. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. There were those who said, No man ever spoke like this man. Someone has said, When Jesus preached as he did. Some were scared, others were offended, and some came to believe. None of them remained indifferent. But how do we account for the tremendous effect of our Lord's preaching? The effect it had upon people. There are certain limitations, I think, to our ability to give a comprehensive answer to that question. As I mentioned in the last message, we don't know what he sounded like. The earnestness, the tenderness, the conviction in his voice, the variety of tone and pitch and volume, the quality of his voice. Nothing's ever said about any of these things in Scripture. Also, there are always, I think, certain intangibles when it comes to this with reference to any preacher. We know that someone, I think, it was, I think it was Dave who mentioned this week about uh, the impression we get sometimes from reading the sermons of men. We sometimes we may read the sermons of some of these great preachers from the past, and it's not uncommon to hear someone, for example, reading he's read Whitfield's sermons or some other great preacher's sermons who was mightily used by God, and to come away a bit disappointed based on what they'd read about the tremendous impact of this man's preaching. They were expecting to find something in the transcript of the message itself that would explain why the preaching was so wonderfully. And yet when reading it, it comes across as very good and sound, but a bit ordinary. There's nothing unusually spectacular about it. Now, I would not go so far as to say that that's the case with Jesus, even in written form. As recorded in Scripture, His preaching is extraordinarily weighty and striking and original, but it's still not the same as it must have been to have actually heard Him. Then, of course, when trying to account for the tremendous effect of our Lord's preaching, certainly the fact that He preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, as we saw in the last sermon, that's a large part of the answer. Then there's also the the intangible element of His character, the kind of man that He was, the holiness of His person, the compassion of His heart, His love, His zeal for the glory of God, His spotless Purity and integrity. As a general rule, there is a proportional relationship between effective preaching and the spiritual health and piety of the preacher himself. Robert Murray McShane put it this way, "...in great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument will be the success. It is not great talents which God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus." A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And we must never forget that. We must never forget that when we talk about preaching. Of course, if, if great likeness to Jesus is a major influence upon the effectiveness of our preaching, how much influence must it have if the person preaching is not only very much like Jesus in his character, but is Jesus himself, who is perfectly holy? In every way. And perhaps this is a good place to mention that there are some things about the preaching of Jesus that we can't follow. For example, Jesus preached about himself. And it would be wrong for us to preach about ourselves. Though we can model him even in that by preaching about him. Likewise, when Jesus spoke, his very words were the word of God. That's not true of our words. Though again, even in that, we can model Him by accurately expounding what the Word of God says, including His words. And even Jesus Himself often expounded the Scriptures and opened up the Scriptures, and His preaching was full of the Scriptures, as we'll see in a few moments. It's also true that Jesus was perfect and sinless, and therefore perfectly balanced and perceptive in ways that even the best preacher will never be. But at the same time, with all of those qualifications assumed, for those of us who are ministers of the gospel, Jesus is still our great and supreme example when it comes to preaching and teaching. Yes, we weren't there when Jesus preached. None of us have ever heard Him. There are things about His preaching that we can't know and things that were unique to Him. Yet there is still much that we can know and learn about His preaching from what we are told in Scripture that provides an example for us to follow. And the first characteristic we saw last time, Jesus preached in dependence upon the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was a Spirit-empowered, Spirit-filled preacher. So now in the time remaining, I want to draw our attention to a few other characteristics of Jesus' preaching. There's a lot of things about His preaching that we could look at that would be profitable for us to consider. Uh, This could actually be an entire series of messages or even a, a helpful book that could be written uh, to help preachers looking at the preaching of Jesus. But uh, in the limited time that we have, let's begin with what we see in this passage and Luke four, beginning in verse 16. According to verses 14 and 15, Jesus has already been preaching in the synagogues and elsewhere throughout the region and his preaching has caused quite a stir. He was being praised by all. His fame was beginning to spread. And now Luke tells us about our Lord's return to Nazareth, his hometown, and his preaching in the synagogue there. It seems the reason that Luke did this, and he placed this account at the very beginning of his gospel record, is that this, this event provides us with something of a representative example, a representative sample of what was characteristic of our Lord's ministry, an example of His preaching in the synagogues. Were you just told that He was preaching in the synagogues? Here, preaching in the synagogue. But here, we actually go into the synagogue with Him, and we have an example to look at of His preaching in the synagogue. And also of the kind of reception that His preaching often received, and the reaction it provoked. Picking up now at verse 16, Luke says, So He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So this is the synagogue that he and his family had attended for many years. And he was very familiar to the people there. They had known him for years as the carpenter. Probably he had, you know, repaired tables and chairs and built furniture pieces for people who were there in the synagogue as he labored for many years as a young man, as a carpenter in Nazareth. But after being away for a while, the rumors about him are spreading throughout Galilee, and they heard them, as the passage indicates later, the reports that their hometown boy, the carpenter, was actually preaching throughout the region and in the synagogues, and that people were amazed at his teaching. And he was also healing the sick. So the word gets around the little village that Jesus is home for a visit, and he's attending the synagogue this Sabbath. And I imagine, brothers, that the synagogue was packed out on that day. So there he is. Every head turned when he walked in. People tried not to stare, but they did. Next we're told that he stood up to read. Sources tell us the synagogue worship began by the singing from the Psalms. There was also the recitation of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. There were prayers, a reading from the law, a reading from the prophets, and there was also exposition and instruction followed by a benediction. So when the time came in the service for the reading and the exposition of Scripture, we're told that Jesus was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. Very likely, knowing that Jesus was there, the synagogue president may have even asked him before the service to do the reading and to speak, which is not surprising in light of what they had heard about his preaching in other places. And when he had opened the book, he found the text that he wanted to read. The reading he chose was from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, and a portion of Isaiah 58, 6. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. So this was his text. Now when it says then that he sat down, he read the text, verse 20, it says he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And when it says he sat down, that means he sat down to teach. This was the custom. After the text was read, whoever is teaching would take the teaching seat. He sat in the seat of authority before the assembly. We often use the expression of someone taking the chair. Well, Jesus took the chair to teach. And the text says, all the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Now, can you imagine that they were? Having heard what they had already been hearing about him, and him having just read such a passage as this passage, can you imagine the electricity in the synagogue, in that room? And he began to preach from this passage. And to say to them, verse 21, Today this scripture is fulfilled. In your hearing, and this language Luke uses, he began to say to them, reminds us that Luke is, is simply giving us a summary of what he said, a summary of the thrust of his message. Jesus explained and expounded this messianic passage in Isaiah, demonstrating and declaring to the people that even now, as he stood among them, the teaching of that passage was being fulfilled in their midst. Now that leads us to the second characteristic of Jesus' preaching that I want to draw attention to. Jesus was not only a Spirit-empowered, Spirit-filled preacher, secondly, He was a Scripture-expounding, Scripture-filled preacher. Now, these two things always go together. A Spirit-empowered preacher will always be a Scripture-expounding preacher. A Spirit-filled preacher will always be a Scripture-filled preacher. The Word and the Spirit are never to be separated from one another. They're they're always found together and work together. If we would preach in the power of the Holy Spirit, we must preach the Scriptures. If we would be full of the Spirit, we must be full of the Scriptures. Now, the question has often been asked, was Jesus an expositional preacher? And, And there are those who've argued that no, He wasn't. And some have even gone further and then argued based on what they mean by expositional preaching that, that we, we shouldn't be either. And this appears to be based on the fact that we don't see pre- uh, Jesus preaching systematically through books of the Bible. And therefore the assumption is that he wasn't an expositional preacher. But, but it's not that simple. There are a number of problems with this kind of argument. First, it's really not a fair question... Because we have to remember that whatever Jesus taught was Scripture. His very words were the Word of God. In one sense, you can't be more expositional than that, right? The best we can do is explain and apply Scripture, including the words of Jesus. Secondly, we have to keep in mind that our Lord's preaching was not that of a stated pastor ministering for long periods of time in one place to one congregation. His ministry was more of an itinerant preaching ministry. Thirdly, part of the problem with that kind of reasoning is an overly narrow understanding of the nature of expositional preaching. Now granted, we often use that language to describe preaching consecutively through large portions of Scripture or through books of the Bible. But but at its very heart, expositional preaching is simply preaching that lays open the biblical text or texts in such a way that the true meaning of the text is shown and explained and brought to bear upon the lives of the hearers. That's what expositional preaching is. And this is exactly what we see Jesus doing time and time again in His preaching. And that's what He's doing here in the synagogue of Nazareth. Remember, this is only one representative example of what Jesus preached in the synagogues. Uh, He's been preaching in the synagogues throughout Galilee. And here we have an example of His preaching that Luke gives us, he he gives us a snapshot, he takes us inside the synagogue, and I think it's safe to assume then that this was his ordinary method. And we see other examples of Jesus' expounding texts of Scripture in the Gospel records. Sometimes it's a brief exposition of a a relevant text during the course of a sermon. Think of his exposition of the proper meaning and application of the law in the Sermon on the Mount. And there are several examples like this. Remember how the Gospel of Luke ends. Remember the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And we read in Luke 24, 27, "...and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them." And that word translated expounded can mean uh, to, um, to interpret, to explain. Uh, it can mean to, to uh, translate, but it's clearly not used that way there. It's used to interpret, to explain... Beginning at Moses and prophet, and the prophets, the things concerning himself. And what about his sermon to the disciples in the upper room? Would you love to have been there? Luke 24, 44 to 46. Then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Now again, Jesus' very words were God's words. Only He could speak by His own authority. And He often did. But we also find Him expounding the Scriptures. As we see here in our text, He was a Scripture-expounding preacher. But quite apart from that, He was also a Scripture-filled preacher. He had a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. And His very soul was saturated with the Scriptures. What do I mean? Well, notice again what we have here in our text. We're told that Jesus stood up to read. In verse 17, he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. So Jesus takes the scroll. Now the translation says book, but remember books were scrolls back in those days. He takes the scroll and he opens it. He unrolls it, which indicates, I think clearly to me, that he was not just taking up something that was the assigned reading in a reading schedule for that week. No, it says He took the scroll and He opened it and He found, it says. He deliberately looked for and found the specific place in Isaiah from which He wanted to speak. Now that may sound like no big deal, but it shows us how well the Lord Jesus knew the Old Testament Scriptures. Unlike our Bibles today, the scroll Jesus read from was not divided into chapters and verses. The words weren't even divided from one another. Ancient Hebrew texts simply placed one letter next to another without any spaces or any punctuation. So for Jesus, right then and there, to find just the right place He wanted to read from and to speak from, He had to have a very intimate knowledge of the Scriptures. Jesus knew His Old Testament. Therefore, He knew what text to turn to for just the message He wanted to bring. And He knew and understood what that text meant it's proper interpretation. In our Lord's mastery of Scripture, it comes out over and over in the Gospels. Just prior to this, you remember up in chapter 4, we have the record of his temptation by the devil in the wilderness. And by what means did Jesus deflect and resist the fiery temptations of the evil one? It was by means of the Scriptures. And it wasn't that he used the Scripture as a kind of talisman or a, a gimmick to scare off the devil you know like in a dracula movie you hold up the cross and the crucifix and the devil dracula runs away just quote a random verse of scripture and satan will flee from you know it was what those scriptures meant their proper interpretation it was his understanding of their meaning and how they related to the specific temptation that was presented to him and his ability to recall those texts of scripture he had them memorized And to bring them to bear at that moment upon the temptation he faced. Jesus could say, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And the scriptures are constantly spilling out of him. Throughout the gospel of Luke, Jesus is constantly quoting from and alluding to the scriptures. Later in this same sermon, when he begins to apply his message, he refers to the famine during the days of Elijah. And to the widow of Zarephath to whom he was sent. He then refers to, the, to Elisha and the cleansing of the Gentile leper Naaman. In chapter five, verse fourteen, he alludes to Leviticus fourteen and Leviticus fifteen. Isaiah thirty-five five in Luke seven twenty-two. Isaiah forty verse three in Luke seven twenty-three. In Luke ten twenty seven, he quotes from Deuteronomy six five and Leviticus nineteen eighteen, and I could go on and on like this. Throughout the entire Gospel of Luke, he's constantly quoting and alluding to the Old Testament scriptures. He speaks of Jonah, the Queen of Sheba, who came to Solomon, Moses and the burning bush, Noah and the flood, Lot and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He quotes from Leviticus, 1 Kings, the Psalms, Isaiah, Hosea, Daniel, Jeremiah. The list is very long. And this is just in the Gospel of Luke alone. Brothers, this is an example for us. We must be men who expound the Scriptures and we must be men who are full of the Scriptures. And how did Jesus know the Scriptures like that? Well, I remind you that Jesus, though always perfectly divine, became and lived on this earth, not as a half man, but as a true man. And He learned His Bible in the same way that we do and that we must. He read the scriptures. He studied the scriptures. He meditated on the scriptures. It's very possible his family didn't even have a copy of the Hebrew scriptures in their home. You would have to go to the synagogue to read the scriptures often, to have a a copy of them to read. And he read them. He studied them. He meditated on the scriptures. He memorized scripture. And my dear brothers, if we would be effective preachers, spirit-empowered preachers, we must be diligent students of the Word of God. You must be, I mean, I don't really have to say this to pastors, I hope, but you must be reading your Bible. Reading your Bible. Reading it a lot. Seeking to master its contents. Learning proper hermeneutics and reading good commentaries and theological works, and we must never stop doing that, never stop growing in our understanding of Scripture, no matter how long you've been in the ministry. No man will ever be an effective preacher who is lazy and is not willing to study and to study hard. And you men know that. You know, you know you'll have young guys come up and ask you about your preaching and how you did that and how did you prepare that. You think to yourself, boy, if they only knew how hard it was. Right? The labor, the work that goes in to studying Scripture, in preaching Scripture. We must devote ourselves to knowing the Scriptures, the content of Scripture, the flow of Scripture, the themes of Scripture, the connections of Scripture, the doctrines of Scripture. Remember Paul's words to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4 13 and following. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine, meditate on these things, give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. 2 Timothy 2 15, be diligent to present yourself to prove to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing. The word of truth. Be diligent. As a student, Jonathan Edwards wrote out a series of resolutions, as many of you know. And one of those resolutions was this, and it should be our resolution as well. Resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same steadily constantly frequently now if you've read Edward's sermons you know that not only does he expound his text but the the entire sermon is packed with additional supporting texts that just are just the right text at the right place to drive home his point of his argument the man was full of the Bible Now listen, unlike Jesus, we don't have the right to speak by our own authority. Jesus often did that. Truly, truly, I say unto you. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. If any of of us pastors ever start speaking that way, then somebody needs to rein us in, right? It's not I saying to you. Jesus could speak that way by His own authority, with no reference to Scripture. And sometimes He did that, but we have no right to do that. The only authority we have in our preaching comes from rightly expounding the Scriptures. We must draw our messages from the text of Scripture. And dear brothers, we need to demonstrate. And this, I think, is very important, because I see this this fading to some degree, especially in some of the younger men coming up. We need to demonstrate to our hearers that that's actually what we're doing. What do I mean by that? Well, sadly, it's not uncommon to hear a preacher read a passage at the beginning of a sermon, then draw a the truth from it, or assert a number of truths along the way that even may be true to the meaning of the text, but he never actually refers to the text again in the whole message. He doesn't show the people he's preaching to where... The points and arguments he's he's making are coming from in the text, you see. As though the people are just to trust us, that we're interpreting the text correctly. You see, one of the things about biblical preaching is you're teaching your people how to interpret Scripture. And you're also guarding them. They, They should become accustomed to their pastor actually showing them from the text of Scripture where he's drawing the arguments and conclusions that he's drawing and demonstrating them and proving them from the Scriptures so that when some guy gets up and preaches to them and he's got a great voice and he's got all kinds of enthusiasm and he's got great illustrations and stories and he's enjoyable to listen to, but he's not demonstrating from the Scriptures the truth of what he's saying, that the alarm bells start going off in their minds, you see. We should addict them to that kind of preaching. Not the preacher who shows the people, never shows them where the points and arguments he's making are coming from. As though the people are just to trust us, we're interpreting the text correctly. No. We need to show the people how the message and how each of the various points that are made in the message are indeed taken from and supported by the text. Get their eyes down into the text, let their ears hear the text. It's Scripture the Spirit uses to awaken the lost. It's Scripture the Spirit uses to beget life in the hearts of dead sinners. It's Scripture the Spirit uses to sanctify and to edify God's people. Our goal is not to get them to trust us. God forbid if they just trust us blindly. But to help them to trust God's Word and to see for themselves that the things we are saying are actually rooted in and supported by the text and also by the teaching of the Bible as a whole as we support our interpretation of a text from other texts of Scripture. And even sometimes drawing our illustrations from Scripture as Jesus does later in this sermon. Jesus was a Spirit-empowered, Spirit-filled preacher. He was a scripture expounding, scripture-filled preacher. And then thirdly, these next two will be somewhat uh, more brief. Somewhat more brief. I I don't mean this, it's going to be five minutes, okay? All right. Thirdly, thirdly. The preaching of the Lord Jesus included an abundant use of appropriate. illustrations and I felt like when I I worded it that way that it's actually an understatement and a, a huge overwhelming abundance use of appropriate illustrations or perhaps it's more accurate to use the language of pastor Martin in his lectures on preaching the preaching of the Lord Jesus included an abundant use of appropriate illuminating devices illuminating in the sense of shining light on and clarifying and helping the truth to be conceptualized and to stick into people's minds which would include illustrations but also anecdotes, metaphors, parables, similes and things of this nature. I'm including all of these things but if you don't mind for simplicity's sake I'll just refer to them all as illustrations in the broadest sense of the term. There's no question a stalker puts it that the discourses of Jesus were plentifully adorned with illustrations. Now, we don't see that so much here in this passage we've been looking at, for Luke only gives us a brief summary of the thrust of our Lord's message, but even here later, as Jesus begins to apply His message in verses 24 to 27, and He anticipates the skepticism of some of those who are listening to Him, He uses two stories from the Old Testament to illustrate Certain important points of application. The story of the widow of Zarephath and the healing of Naaman the leper. And this is something Jesus sometimes did and I think is very helpful to do. He sometimes drew his illustrations from the scriptures themselves. But this was certainly not the only kind of illustration he used, not even close. Now Think about it, brothers. We can't possibly turn to all the passages, but I trust you men can remember what we see in the Gospels. Think of our Lord's parables. Now granted, some of them were partly given to conceal the truth from those who had already hardened their hearts and then to provoke the disciples to come to Him later to ask questions so He could explain those parables in private. But that was not the case with all of them by any means. The purpose of many of them was to make the truth clear and to picture it in a way that the mind could see and have difficulty ever forgetting the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and who could ever forget the parable of the prodigal son? Or who could miss the point of that parable? The parable of the rich man building bigger barns to hoard his possessions, only to find out that night his soul would be required of him. The friend at midnight, the Pharisee and the tax collector in the temple, and there are many others like this. Just think of the Sermon on the Mount for a moment. I was trying to think of a way to... How do, how do I present all of this where you can, we can see it and be, feel the weight of it? So Let's just think of the Sermon on the Mount. We have a three-chapter summary of that sermon. Think of all the illustrations and word pictures in that sermon, in just those three chapters. Let's just think of them. The salt that has lost its savor. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. A lamp put under a basket instead of on a lampstand to light the house. The judge and the officer. A man being thrown in prison until he pays the last penny. Plucking out right eyes. Cutting off right hands. Turning the other cheek. Giving your cloak also. Going the extra mile sounding a trumpet in the streets to be seen of men, hypocrites disfiguring their faces, the moth and the rust, the thieves who break in and steal, the lamp of the body, the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, the speck in your brother's eye, the beam sticking out of your own eye, casting pearls before swine who turn and rend you, a son asking for bread, and his father gave him a Stone or asking for a fish, will he give him a serpent? The wide gate and the broad way, the narrow gate and the narrow way, wolves in sheep's clothing, the good tree bearing good fruit, the bad tree bearing bad fruit that is cut down and cast into the fire, the two builders and the two houses. The one house built upon the sand, the other built upon the rock. And brothers, all of that, just in the Sermon on the Mount. And there's more, much more, as we read through the Gospel accounts, quoting J.C. Ryle, commenting on this. I need hardly remind you of the example of Him who spake as never man spake, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Study the four Gospels and mark what a wealth of illustration, illustration His sermons generally contain. How often you find figure upon figure, parable upon parable in his discourses. There was nothing under his eyes, apparently, from which he did not draw lessons. And what was motivating Jesus to do that? It was his love for the people he was speaking to. He didn't just want to preach good sermons, he wanted them to understand them. He wanted them to get it, for it to connect with them. He goes on. There was nothing under his eyes, apparently, from which he did not draw lessons. the birds in the air and the fi- this will bring to my, your mind passages of Scripture: the birds of the air, the fish in the sea, the sheep, the goats, the cornfield, the vineyard, the ploughman, the sower, the reaper, the fisherman, the shepherd, the vine dresser, the woman kneading meal, the flowers, the grass, the wedding feast, the tombstone, the sepulchre. All were made vehicles for conveying thoughts to the minds of hearers. What are such parables as the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, the ten virgins, the king who made a marriage for his son, the rich man in Lazarus, the laborers of the vineyard, and others? What are all these but stirring stories that our Lord tells in order to convey some great truth to the souls of his hearers? And then Ryle gives the exhortation to us preachers, Try to walk in his footsteps and follow his example. Now, I know, you know, it's common for us to say, you know, we don't want preachers, we're critical of preachers that just tell stories all the time. and, And obviously, that can be a danger. I know that illustrations can be overused. We can overload our sermons with so many illustrations and stories and word pictures and so forth that it actually takes away from the exposition of the word our purpose is to expound and apply truth not merely to entertain those we are speaking to i know that it's true we have to be careful about that but with that caution assumed if we would preach like jesus we should seek like jesus to make ample use of appropriate illustrations they serve several purposes the primary purpose is to clarify the truth. And, we, and we, we must never forget that. This is the primary function, not to show off or merely to entertain, but to clarify the truth. But in addition to that, they can also be used in a sermon to gain or to regain the attention of our hearers. And sometimes you'll find occasion to do that in the act of preaching. You know, if you're preaching and you can tell that everybody's falling asleep. I'm looking out there right now to see if you're falling asleep. But if you tell everyone's falling asleep or people are just not getting it, it's a good time to stop and come up with some kind of illustration or story or something to get their attention again. Bring them back in. And and it's good to build that even into your sermon when you're preparing your sermon ahead of time. Quoting Ryle again, if you pause in your sermon and say, Now, I will tell you a story. I engage that all who are not too fast asleep will prick up their ears (laughs) and listen. And that's one of the, the benefits. Another secondary function not often thought of is that illustrations can be used to give your hearers a mental break. And we don't often think about that part. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, when you're dealing with ideas that may be complex, that require your hearers to carefully track... With your arguments, while it's good to use illustrations to clarify the complex, it's also good sometimes to use them to illustrate the obvious. Just to give the hearers a mental break. It's a way of catching their breath. That will help them to think hard in the other parts of the sermon. And then, of course, illustrations and figures of speech and the like Also help a sermon to be more interesting and, dare I say it, pleasing and attractive. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. So long as it's not an end in itself. In other words, they have an aesthetic value. Why is it so pleasurable to read the sermons of Spurgeon, for example? Well, I'll tell you one reason is that not only is there solid, sound, biblical, relevant truth in those sermons, but that truth is presented in a way that is striking and interesting and catchy, and he uses an abundance of metaphors and figures of speech and illustrations. Spurgeon himself said this in his lectures to my students. And by the way, he's, he's, he's here he's commending the use of illuminating devices... But he can't even do that without the whole statement being full of illuminating devices. All right? He said this in his lecture to my students. Windows greatly add to the pleasure and agreeableness of a habitation. And so do illustrations make a sermon pleasurable and interesting. A building without windows would be a prison rather than a house. For it would be quite dark. And no one would care to take it upon lease, or no one would want to rent a house like that. And in the same way, a discourse without a parable is prosy and dull, and involves a grievous weariness of the flesh. Let us not deny, then, the salt of parable with the meat of doctrine. Our congregations hear us with pleasure when we give them a fair measure of imagery. When an anecdote is being told, they rest, take breath, was talking about earlier, and give play to their imaginations, and thus prepare themselves for the sterner work which lies before them in listening to our profounder expositions. No reason exists why the preaching of the gospel should be a miserable operation, either to the speaker or to the hearers, pleasantly profitable, let all our sermons be. And I'll mention one other benefit. Illustrations help people to remember the truth that we have preached to them. Just think about the preaching of the Lord Jesus again. Think about how some of those parables that He told and word pictures and illustrations that He used, think about how so many of them and the truth conveyed by them are forever stamped upon our minds, never to be forgotten. And really are forever stamped upon the consciousness of Western culture. And that have become figures of speech in, in the English language. They're so hard to be forgotten and they're, they're so gripping. For some of us, many of them, since, since we first heard them when little children in Sunday school. Think of your own children. Are there not illustrations that you've used in preaching that after many long years have passed, they still remember them? I remember we would ask our kids who we were driving home from church when they were little, I would say, my wife might say to them, what did daddy preach on today? And, They would go, God? (laughs) Okay, you got to give us more information than that, right? Of course, that's going to be the right answer. But what are the things they usually remember? They remember the illustrations, right? And that's not only true of children, it's true of God's people in general. It's true of me, It's true of you. There are illustrations you've used in preaching that after many long years have passed away, your people still remember them. And because they remember them, they also remember the truth that was illustrated by them. So brothers, let us take Jesus as our example here. Now granted, some of you are, are more naturally gifted at doing this than others of us are, but we can all work at it. And we can ask the Lord to help us. Ask the Lord to help us to have an eye for common, everyday objects and events, common everyday experiences that can be used to illustrate truth. Practice it with your children in family worship. Expose yourself to the preaching of men who are good examples of this, especially Jesus himself, Thomas Watson, Mark Chansky, if he doesn't mind me saying. It's a great example of using illustrations and anecdotes in preaching. Expose yourself to good examples. Perhaps keep a file, hard copy or electronic, of interesting illustrations and anecdotes that you come across from time to time in your reading. I sometimes find it helpful as well in sermon preparation when I'm stuck and I'm trying to come up with a good illustration, perhaps a historical example or or something like that. I found it helpful to search on the internet. For example, not long ago I was preparing a sermon on a passage in which Christ was correcting wrong expectations about the kingdom of God. And at one point, I'm trying to think of a good way to introduce this sermon and to illustrate really what the, the, the thought that I want to really deal with in the sermon. So I typed into Google search the words, false advertising, or something like that. And lo and behold, an article came up, and it mentioned several very interesting false advertising schemes that have been exposed in recent years. So I drew from that article, I mentioned some of the most striking examples and the most interesting examples of this, and then I used that to lead into the question, is Jesus guilty of false advertising when it comes to the kingdom? So sometimes Google search can be helpful. But the bottom line, if we would preach like Jesus, we must seek to use Appropriate illustrations. And sometimes language, as Stuart Aliak puts it, that can be seen. Putting eyes into people's ears. Well, my time is quickly passing. There's one other characteristic of our Lord's preaching that I wanted to draw attention to. There are several others that we could look at, but I definitely did not want to skip this one. I'm just going to be able to touch on it. I regret that because it's extremely important we had more time, we could get into it, but at least I could be suggestive. Jesus was a Spirit-filled preacher, a Scripture-filled preacher, an illustrating preacher, and then fourthly and finally, the Lord Jesus was an applicatory preacher. An applicatory preacher. Jesus did not merely declare the truth or expound the meaning of a text and leave it at that. He applied the truth to the hearts and to the consciences of his hearers. And he often did so in a very direct and very pointed manner. No one who heard Jesus could ever walk away and legitimately ask the question, so what? What does that have to do with me? That's a good question to ask in your sermon preparation. You've expounded the text, you've exegeted it. Now the question is, you've got all these people who are going to be sitting before you on Sunday. What's the question they're going to be asking? So what? What does it have to do with me? What does it have to do with that, that, that sweet little widow in your church, and her life? Or that mom who's raising children and changing diapers? Or that man who has to go to work every day of the week in that difficult place? Or that, that believer who's struggling with assurance? Or that lost sinner who's there? Among God's people. So what? What does it have to do with me? Right? You ask that question. No one ever went away from Jesus asking that question. We see that here in our opening passage in Luke 4. After reading Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, He began to say, Today, right now, this day, the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He opens up that passage proclaiming that what was pictured and declared in the Old Testament by the year of Jubilee has now come. The day of salvation has arrived. The Scripture is fulfilled because He is here. The Savior of the world has come. He preaches the good news, the free offer of the Gospel, proclaiming liberty to the captives of sin and the devil and recovery of sight to those who are spiritually blind. And then after that, He anticipates the way many of those sitting in that synagogue were thinking when He preached. That's something we must do in our sermons. Anticipate the various attitudes, the conditions, the spiritual states represented by the people who are sitting under our preaching and seek to apply the Scriptures to those various attitudes and conditions. Well, Jesus knew that many, what many in that synagogue were thinking They were amazed at his preaching, but many of them were skeptical of his message and of his claims. Many of them were self-righteous, religious folks, self-satisfied observers, glad to listen, but no more. And anticipating that, he gives two examples from the lives of Elijah and Elisha. Elijah helping the Gentile widow of Zarephath, though there were many widows in Israel at that time. Elisha and the healing of the Gentile leper Naaman, though there were many lepers in Israel at that time. And by these examples, he presses upon these people that they have no claim upon God's grace simply because they were born into a Jewish family. The blessings of the gospel are only for those who believe. And if this gospel is rejected by them in their self-righteousness and pride, God will send it elsewhere. You see, Jesus was applying His message. He didn't allow them to remain neutral. He preached for a response and for a verdict. And in this case, when they heard these things, verse 28, they were filled with anger. Sometimes applicatory preaching may make some people angry at you. Remember the quote I gave earlier. When Jesus preached as He did, some were scared, others were offended... And some came to believe none of them remained indifferent. He wouldn't let them because the Lord Jesus was an applicatory preacher. And I just want to mention here that Jesus was balanced in His application. He wasn't all rebuke and conviction. There was also comfort and consolation. It's interesting, as Stalker points out in his book on the example of Christ, I'd never really thought of this, you, you know that some people actually thought that Jesus was one of the prophets risen from the dead. And what were two of those prophets they thought He might be? One was Jeremiah, and the other was Elijah. They were both great prophets, but you could hardly find two types that were more opposite. Jeremiah, full of tenderness who wished that his eyes were a fountain of tears to weep over the condition of his people. Elijah, the man of rock who could rebuke kings and rebuke queens to their faces. But you see, there was something they saw of both in the preaching of Jesus. You know, some men seem to think that it's not applicatory preaching unless it's ripping up consciences and full of rebukes. And that's almost all they ever do. Rebuke and correct. But then there are others and all they ever try to do is encourage people. But Jesus did both. And so must we. The same Jesus who said, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, also cried, come unto me. All ye who weary are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The same Jesus who warned that every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and cast into the fire, also said, "Whoever believes on me shall not perish, but have everlasting life." The same Jesus who, in his preaching, said to some, "And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth," when you see Abraham and his, and and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. He also said to others, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Well, I would really like to open up this aspect of our Lord's preaching more, but He was balanced in His application. And we need to be balanced in our application. I remember when I... Um, I remember I got, I got converted uh, just as I was coming out of seminary. So it's a long story. I was a, a self-deceived, pharisaical hypocrite. When I got converted, I first started out, I went into a Southern Baptist church. And I was still figuring out my theology. I was beginning to embrace Reformed theology. I had an understanding, better understanding of the gospel, and I realized I'm preaching to a congregation full of people that aren't—they're not even converted, most of them. And that's the case in many of the, the churches in the South. Well, that affected the, the way I preached. You know, it was like every sermon was was trying to undeceive you know, deceived church members. It didn't matter what my text was. Somehow, that's where I went with the text. Okay? Well, God bless. We saw some conversions. It's a long story. I eventually had to leave that church. Some of the people who were converted there, we eventually started a church where I pastored in Easley, South Carolina for 15 years. But for a while, I was still preaching the same way. And I had to, to realize, I'm preaching to a different kind of congregation. Most of these people are believers that I'm preaching to. And I'm just driving them into the ground where they're doubting their salvation all the time. And they need more comfort. They need more encouragement. They need me to point them to Christ. And we need to be balanced. That's all I'm trying to say. Our congregations are going to be made up of different kinds of people, different needs and different situations. And we need to comfort those who are hurting. We need to encourage those who are doubting. We need to seek to awaken those who are asleep and dead in their sins. And so may God help us to follow the example of Jesus and to be applicatory preachers. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for our wonderful Savior. We see his beauty, his glory throughout the pages of Scripture. We even see it when we consider his preaching. We thank you for such a Savior. Help us to be more like him. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.